It is a privilege to be with you again and to open the scriptures together. If you have your copy of the scripture, please open it to Galatians chapter 5. There we go. Our series is uh, Faith Working Through Love. This is Paul's conclusion. This is his main argument. It's not our obedience that wins favor with God. It is his grace, and our faith in that grace expresses itself through love. I've been listening to uh, Marx, Marxism by uh, Thomas Sowell, 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 however you pronounce his name, and um, Harvard professor, and uh, he has been talking about what motivated Marx's vision, Marx's, Marx, Marx's, uh, vision for the proletariat, the working class. Uh, he observed the working class as they slaved in their menial tasks, in their menial labor. Um, and he, he, that bothered him. The bourgeois, the, uh, the rich, the wealthy, were free to pursue their interests, free to live their lives. The proletariat, the poor, the blue-collar, the working class were not. His argument is that that Marx's uh, position was not primarily economic. He anticipated that someday the working class would revolt, that there would be a transformation in economy, but so that the purpose was, the goal was, at least in in Sowell's argument, is that... uh, the working class would have the freedom to go and pursue their identity and find their creativity and enjoy life like everyone else. I think it's fascinating to see how cultural Marxism, not Marxism, but cultural Marxism, has infiltrated our country. Because this is exactly the kind of thing we hear from the younger generations. I actually had an 18-year-old look at me and say, I don't know what to do. I said, what's the problem? I don't want to spend my life going to work every day. Well, who does, right? I mean, come on. I don't either. I said, well, what do you want to do? I I want to pursue my expression. I want to do art. I want to do poetry. I want to scale the mountains. There's so many things in this life I want to enjoy. And sitting in an office all day just is not something I'm interested in. That's cultural Marxism. Fundamentally, God challenges that and says, No, I made you to work. That was pre-fall. Before the fall, God created mankind and endued him with gifts to work in his creation. To, yes, create art, but to work in his creation. Work is fundamental to who we are. And it's dignified and it's God-honoring to put a bolt on an engine as engines pass by you every day moment of the day that you work eight hours in a Ford factory. There's dignity there. There's glorifying God in that. 
And so the criticism of Marx um, is obviously a movement is starting where our culture is starting to criticize the Marxian uh, theory that is permeating our society. The reason I tell you that is Marx's philosophy goes not only against the scripture, but it goes against our human nature. It challenges our human nature. It exposes our human nature. It tells us how we think and what we long for. Some would argue that the only way to control the proletariat is to enslave them. And it reminds me of of what Paul's discussion here is about the flesh. How do we contain the flesh? Do we enslave it? Marx would say, yes, if he was a theologian. (laughs) Um, That is not what Paul says. Paul does not say that the answer to the flesh is control. The answer to the flesh is dominance or enslavement. The answer to the flesh is something different. So I'd like us to read together, if you will, uh, Galatians five thirteen through 16. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we control our flesh? If we viewed flesh as the proletariat, how do we control it? How do we govern it? How do we manage it? Paul is telling us in this text. Um, I think the lesson for our text is the Spirit of God enables us to live in the freedom of grace transforming us into loving servants that fulfill the law of God. The Spirit of God enables us to live in the freedom of grace and transforms us into loving servants that fulfill the law of God. Paul's teaching up to this point is seemingly against the law. Now, he does a much broader job in handling the law of God in the book of Romans. And he says the law is spiritual, it's good. The problem with the law is not the law. The law's failure to transform people, to rescue people, or to control people has everything to do with the people it's trying to control. It has to do with our sin nature, with who we are as Adam's fallen descendants, as the fallen children of Adam and of Eve. Um, But Paul has been saying that anyone who tries to be right with God, tries to earn their standing with God through their obedience, they are under the curse that the law brings. Because if you're going to be rescued that way, if you're going to make God happy that way, if you're going to try and win his favor that way, then you have to complete all the law, every last bit of it, and you've already failed because the moment you realized you needed to obey God, you have already disobeyed him in your life. And so there's no recompense for that. There's no way to overcome the falling short of the glory and the perfection that God is and demands 
of his creation, what we were originally created to experience. So Paul has, has not been saying the law is bad, but he's been showing that the law cannot justify us, that there's no one who has been justified by the law, made righteous with, with God by the law, but that through faith in what Jesus has done for us, we can be declared righteous, and now the Spirit will actually transform us into loving servants of the Lord who actually end up fulfilling the law. We actually end up obeying the very law that we were unable to obey. That this is the Spirit's work uh, in our lives. So a couple, couple thoughts from the text. First, freedom creates a base of operation. And I wanted you to see that. If, I think this is kind of a central idea to the apostle in this text. Uh, verse 13 you call to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The idea there of opportunity literally is a base of operation. A base of operation. Um, if, you've, if you've been this summer out in the field or gone to a park, um, I had the privilege of, of being up at a, a retreat center with our elders and deacons recently, and there was a pond full of fish. And I don't think these fish had been fished because it didn't matter what I threw at them. They were eaten. It was a lot of fun. But every once in a while, as I walked around this pond, I would find a base of operations for red ants. And they are a holy terror. I got one of them in my shirt yesterday. I was pressure washing the drive. And I got one of them, in, I don't know how he got there. Maybe I, I hit him when I was pressure washing and he flew up through the air and landed on me. I don't know. But this little spawn of evil, this little demon got underneath my shirt and I have got one, two, three. And what do you do? I can't see him. I can't find him. I open my, I mean, I mean you'd think I, I was going crazy out there, ah, you know, trying to get this, my shirt off, trying to find this little demon that is biting me, that is controlling me. Well, if you've seen these base of operations, there's no way to destroy it. You just have to put some ant killer on it and hope that they eat it and go away. I mean, there's, you can try and unearth it, you can, but if you kick it, you're really in trouble. Uh, when we first moved here, we went to Stone Mountain and camped out there, and I did not know about these little spawns of the devil. And so I was fishing, again, on the side, edge of the lake, standing on top of a red ant pile. I, it, it still brings back PTSD flashbacks for me. I got, to the, I got back to the camper, and my mom didn't know what was going on, so they just started hitting me. What's wrong? What's biting you? I don't know. Okay, so you, you have that vision of a base of operations. Certainly, you understand when a, when a military moves in, the first thing it does is it sends, sets up a base of operations to receive supplies, and from which to operate within life. Um, this is the language. And what freedom does is it, is it kind of leaves space. It leaves space. Uh, Jesus uses this illustration of a demon that's cleansed out of a person, and it, now there's, there's freedom, now there's space. And because that space is not filled with something, uh, they come back, and they come back in force. And that's what Paul is communicating here, is you're giving an opportunity for something. You're opening up space for something to govern, for something to take over. 
Now, he does not say that the space is left void. But what he says is, don't allow that space, that freedom that you have, to become a base of operations for your flesh. And this is his argument in Romans 6, when he, when he talks about how great grace is, about how great it is to be free, about how great it is to be justified. The, the accusation is, hey, Paul, if you preach this, why would there be any motivation for obedience? Why should anyone obey with such freedom? Why shouldn't everyone live for themselves? And he does not say that the space is void, that the space is empty. He says someone has inhabited that space. And so now there's a conflict that's going on. And if you'll follow me just a little bit further in verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So in the freedom that we have received by being declared righteous, no longer fearing the condemnation of God, no longer fearing the judgment of God, no longer feeling oppressed by the law, no longer feeling the guilt and shame that characterizes humanity, in that freedom, now we have two dwellers. We have the Spirit of God, and we have our flesh. And the flesh is not our body. It's connected to our body. It's those sinful desires that we have, that, that have, you know, become who we are in behavior and in thinking. It's how we have lived our lives, as Paul says uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, just in my Bible, one page over, when he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body or the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is how you were born. You were born with these sinful desires innate to who you are, innate to your sin nature, And now God has come and rescued you from that and he's created space and he's put his spirit within you to work out that new life within us. So don't miss this idea that that freedom creates space and that the Holy Spirit has come into that space. Um, Paul's argument is that the law cannot do, it cannot manage your flesh, it cannot control your flesh but this new presence and this new person can. New life in Christ frees me, Paul says, from this fundamental slavery to my desires. What was natural and normal and just who I was, if I can use that terminology, you know, this is how I was born. This is, you hear that today. There's no reason to deny that. Yes, you're right. You were born a sinner. You were born with sinful desires. Yes, that does characterize you. Your particular sin is not your identity, but certainly the fact that you're a sinner is your identity. Um, Paul says we've been freed from that, liberated um, by the, the person of Christ on the cross from, the, from that slavery to our desires. The question becomes, how are we going to respond to that freedom, to that space that's been created um, by the Holy Spirit? And so Paul says, well, the Holy Spirit's the one who can actually put 
the deeds of the flesh to death. This new person, this new presence can actually slay the desires that consume you, the things that you wrestle against. And by the way, Paul in no passage of the Scripture ever says that the flesh and the Holy Spirit are equals. He never says that the Spirit and Satan are equals. The power of the Spirit to transform our hearts to take our desires and make them new is the very power that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. It's the power of the resurrected Christ. That is the power that dwells within us. The power to raise new life out of death. And so it is no thing for the Holy Spirit to change my desires and make them glorious and honorable and pleasing to God. That's an easy thing for him. Now, I have to confess, he often doesn't do it quickly. I've known people who have said, God changed my heart, and boom, they never smoked again. Or they never drank again. Or they never, you know, looked at pornography again. Or, or whatever it was, there was a radical break. And the Holy Spirit does that for some people. For some others, it is a process of humbling and leading us to deeper and deeper repentance until there is a final, I genuinely don't want that anymore. And so when Satan presents the lure to which my desire responds, there is no longer a response. Now, I, I look at that in my life and say, that did not come from me. That came from the powerful working of the Holy Spirit to actually change what I desire. And Paul would say, I agree with you, Tim. Always good when Paul agrees with me. Come on, guys. Um, the Spirit is stronger. He is the victor. And as long as we stay near Him, He will fight for us. And he will fight with us as we cry out for help, as we cry out in battle. Um, I'm reminded of the movie My Bodyguard. Uh, when I was a kid in the 70s, this was a real popular movie. A little scrawny kid kept getting picked on, kept getting beaten up. And so he hired a bodyguard. Uh, see, you know, actually, the guy was no longer in school. He had dropped out after several attempts at school. And... Um, he was his bodyguard, and as long as the bodyguard was there, the bullies couldn't touch him. They didn't dare touch him. The moment the bodyguard wasn't there, <laughs> yikes, run for your life. Um, keeping in step with the Spirit, and we'll talk about it more next week, has, has this idea of staying close to, uh, staying connected to through the means of grace. So freedom creates base of operations, and the, the issue is this battle between the flesh and the spirit, between our desires and what the spirit of God desires, and they're opposite each other. And uh, we're praying that we're asking the Holy Spirit who is powerful to change those desires. Well, grace also frees us uh, to love others. That freedom creates this space, and the grace that we've received actually transforms us into neighbor lovers, uh, people who care about others. This is Synecdoche, it's a mentioning of the part to reference the whole. 
the whole is the command of Jesus to say that all the law is fulfilled in two words, two commandments, and that is to love God and to love your neighbor. Um, to love our neighbor requires that we know the love of God, that we experience the love of God, and that we are transformed by the love of God. Um, for Jesus, this command is different. Uh, he says, I give you a new commandment. It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. But the standard for evaluation is new. Uh, the most powerful love on the planet is my love for myself. I was born with it. I protect myself. I take care of myself. I look out for myself. Um, and Jesus says, yes, that is the most powerful love on the planet. Maybe, maybe next to it is a mother's love for her children. Um, I wish we could say a father's love, but I, I tend to let my children suffer. There's probably a lesson in that, is what I say. Um, but still, the most powerful love, God says, is our love for self. And Jesus says, but now I have a new love that is even stronger and greater, and I want you to base how you love your neighbor on that, and that is his love for us. It's a beautiful transition where Jesus would say, yes, look to how much you love yourself and take care of yourself and use that as a standard for how to treat others. He says, now there's something greater. And I, I, I think that's a very beautiful statement. Um, Paul's point is that grace has this transforming power to turn us from people who look at ourselves and defend ourselves and create identity for ourselves and try and prove our righteousness. And you think about what's happening in the Galatian church as people are pressuring other Christians to live a certain way. You're not free. You've got to obey the law. And, uh, and as I love how Paul says it here at the end of the verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed. This is what's happening. This is what, happened when we this is what happens when we live for ourselves, when we walk in our flesh. There's no peace. There's just disharmony. Because I don't, I, I'm using you. Basically, I'm using you to shape me. I'm using you to shape how I think about myself. I think about myself in relation to you instead of thinking about myself in relation to God. And so now you're a tool in making me who I want to be. Guys, I hate to tell you this, but most of our marriages function on this level to some degree. And to actually love our spouse, to actually love our children, parents, you wait. Parents of little children, you wait. You might not realize it now, but you're probably building your identity around your children. How good they are at sports, how much they excel in school, the good decisions they make, the progress they make, and you're proud of them, and that's great. I'm proud of my kids too, and God's proud of his kids. But what happens when they fail? What happens when they go down a, a dark path? What happens when they, they make decisions that you wouldn't make? Does that threaten you? Does it threaten how you think about yourself? What happens when your marriage falls apart because of a spousal divergence into sin? Does that threaten how you... Is your identity based on your marriage? Is your family based on... Is your identity based on your children and their performance? These are the things that are core to how we think. And James says these desires are behind our conflicts because what are we protecting? Ultimately, we're protecting ourselves. 
Ultimately, we're building an identity around ourselves. And that means I'm going to use you. It means I'm going to use the people in my life for that purpose. Grace frees us from that. Christ frees us from that. He gives us a new identity. He gives us, he, he walks us into the relationship of the Father with the Son so that we can know not just the love that God has for His creation, but so that we can know the love that God has for Jesus Himself. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3, I pray that you will know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not just through Christ Jesus, but through But the relationship that they have, the microcosm of their affection for each other, is what he wants you to experience. He frees us from self. He helps us to have the mind of Christ, Paul says in Philippians 2, which is to have glory and to say, but I don't need that. It's not something I have to hold on to. To be willing to humble ourselves and become a servant an obedient servant, even to the point of self-sacrifice. This is what grace does. It frees us to love others. It frees us to love God. Love for God pours out of God's love for us. As we grow in that, as we understand how much He loves us, our affection for Him grows. And out of that love comes a freedom and a power and a new affection for our neighbors. Love for God and love from God gives us merciful, compassionate hearts to the people around us, to the needs around us. And to see the need instead of seeing how I'm relating to this person for selfish reasons. And let's face it, we do that in our businesses, in our families, in our, in our clients, whatever realms you're in. Our world is based on this use of each other instead of love for each other. And this is the power of a new affection. The freedom provided comes with this new affection. If Christ is your Savior, there is affection for Him in your heart. And as that grows, your flesh has less and less power. And as the Spirit dwells within you, guess what He is delighting in? And guess what He wants you to delight in? The love that God has for you. This is what the Spirit of God is doing even today. As you avail yourself to the means of grace, the the prayers, the, the preaching of the Word, the sacrament, the community of faith, all these ways that God wants to stir up the grace that He's given you. He wants to stir your heart today for greater affection for Him because that is the expulsive power. That is what pushes out everything else. What the law cannot do, control, manage flesh, condemn flesh, what the law cannot do, try and restrain flesh, the Spirit of God actually has the power to do. And it is the very power of the resurrected Christ. Liberated from the flesh, no longer pursuing our own desires, we are truly free to love others.
Love is not the absence of self or the loss of self. It is seeing ourselves as recipients of grace and as means of grace to those around us. It's to know that I am now here for you. And my life is to be lived for you in service to God. Consider lying. Keller has a great illustration. I'll summarize it. Where were you last night? Oh, I'm not going to tell him the truth. What were you watching last night? I can't tell the truth because that will put me in a position of vulnerability. I will be known. I will be caught. I will be found out. And so I'm going to lie. I'm going to protect myself. Why did you do poorly on that test? Well, I'm not going to tell my my parents or my teacher it's because I stayed up way too late last night watching, you know, some show on Netflix. I'm going to tell them a lie. Why do we lie? We lie not to be exposed. We lie so that the truth about us isn't known. We lie for self-protection. We lie because we don't want to be known. Grace frees us from that. Grace says you're already known and you're fully loved. Grace, Keller says, eats away at the motivation for lying. I don't need to lie anymore. I don't need to hide. I don't need to cover and blame shift. I'm loved. And anything I've done or said or failures in my life have already been dealt with through the blood of Jesus. And so confession is something I can do freely. Grace eats away at the very motive of sin in my life, the very desires that govern me. The Spirit can do what the law cannot. This is why I included verse 16. Paul says, here's the answer. Put yourself in the Galatian church. If you tell people that they're forgiven for present, past, and future sins, then there's no motivation for obedience. You're going to turn people into licentious individuals. They're going to do whatever. There's no consequence. They've been forgiven. What's the motivation? Ah, give them consequence. Give them law. Give them rules to follow. That'll motivate them. Give them some carrots. Give them some sticks. The carrot is the, you know, come get it. The stick is the prod. The carrot is my suckers at the end of the service. I carroted your your kids. Because that's the only thing that's going to control behavior. You know what Paul would say to that? Having begun in the Spirit, do you think you're going to be completed by the flesh? Do you think you can control the flesh? Does the law do that? No, the law exposes the flesh. The law exposes sin. That's all it does. It exposes it. It condemns it. It slams it against the wall and says, guilty, guilty, guilty. And it leaves us saying, well, then how will I be delivered? How will I be rescued? And the answer is through the person of Jesus. The Spirit of God can overcome your flesh. He is more powerful than your desires. 
what will happen if we free people from the law of God as a way of earning or maintaining God's favor? They're going to go into sin. The answer to that is maybe. That's the reality. God's people might chase after their desires for a time. The way John says it, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing the Apostle's argument in 1 John. The life that you live today will be consistent with the life that was given you. The Holy Son of God gave you His Holy Spirit, the righteous Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the sinless Spirit, the Spirit that delights in God, the Spirit that rejoices in obedience. That's the life you have. That's why Paul can say that he who began the good work in you, he will complete it. He will bring it to completion. And let me just say to you, brothers and sisters, there ain't nothing you can do about that. The Holy Spirit will. You have been, by God's grace, set apart for holiness, for blamelessness. He will work that out. It might be a long journey. has been for me. But He will bring it to completion. But it's the Spirit that does not, that, not the law. And Paul is adamant on this point. Having begun in the Spirit, do you think the flesh is going is to is gonna finish this off? No. It's going to be the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Keep next to the Spirit. Keep in close step. Make room. You, he's already made room. He's inhabited. He's there. Now stay close to Him. And watch Him change your heart. Watch Him change desires. Watch the flesh be more and more minimized in your life. The Westminster Confession, this is not one of your study questions, but I think it would be helpful to read it. This is chapter 17, and verse, uh, cha- section 2. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus, the abiding of the Spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from, which, from all which arises also the certainty and the infallibility thereof. Now listen to section 3. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, their flesh, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, the means of grace, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve this Holy Spirit, and come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt, 
scandalize others, bite and devour one another, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Not eternal, but temporal. Look, this is what's happening in our lives. But we get impatient and say, well, let's impose the law. Let's make law out of tradition. God's answer is, let's go to the Holy Spirit. Let's draw near to Him through the means of grace. Some applications. How is your effort to control your flesh going? Now, you know you better than I know you. I might be able to tell you or or recount some of your story what you do for a living, although sometimes I mess that up. I might forget one of your children's names because there's so many children. Not in your family, but in our church. But you know you pretty well. How is your effort to control the anger, the tribalism, the hatred that we have for others? Your lust... Your materialism. How's that going? I know people who say, I give faithfully. I always want to ask this question. Sometimes I do. Most of the time I refrain. I give faithfully to the church and to the poor and to the needy. And I want to ask, do you pay your taxes honestly? See, We can manage our flesh to some degree, but it always shows its greedy, ugly face. I don't watch pornography. What's the follow-up to that? To ask a question about their gaze? when I'm sitting there with them at lunch and a beautiful woman walks by? See, the heart cannot be managed. It can't. It has to be overthrown. And my friends, God has the power to overthrow it through Jesus Christ. How would God say it's going? Because he knows you better than anyone. And I would remind you that as he looks at your failure to manage and control, he loves you still. And he has great grace for you through his spirit. How does grace remove our motivation to sin? I'd like you to meditate on that one. Piper, I think it was, wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of New Affection based on Edwards' writings on the subject. It's a very powerful little book. I would encourage you to get it. Because you cannot control it. You cannot manage it. It has to be overthrown by the Spirit of God. And then finally, grace frees us from tribalism. We are entering the age... Our culture of what 
Sowell has said is cultural Marxism. And others are taking up that banter or that, that banner, not banter, banner, that theme. We are more and more divided by our unique identities. Who we are, either according to our class or to our selfish desire, sin struggles that define us. I am this, this person, and it's largely in the realm of sexual identity that we're seeing this, but it's beyond that. It's gone much farther than just our sexual identities. It's gone into every area of life. It's created a tribalist movement. I read a study not long ago, or part of it, it was a very long study, on how tribal we've become. And what's happening now is the, is the big tribe, the banner tribe, is victimhood or oppression, being oppressed. And so if you can have an identity under oppressed, some oppression banner, you're part of our tribe, our broader tribe. Folks, this is the power of the gospel, to remove that. That's why Paul can say, in the body of Christ, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no barbarian or Scythian. There's no male or female. There's no tribalism. There's one body under Christ, united by his grace and living in love. And I tell you, the gospel has the power to unite us in love at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Father, Minister to your people as we go to your table. Confirm your love for us. Unite us around Christ, his sacrifice for us, his atonement. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has paid the debt and carried away the guilt and the shame. And we rejoice today as your people. Minister to us as your children, as by faith we cling to what these elements present. In Jesus' name, amen.